episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. So happy you can be joining us today, beautiful people. I am your host, Olga Peters, and I am speaking with regular contributor and representative Emily Kornheiser. Hello, Emily. Good morning, Olga. Good morning. So glad we can be here today. Me too. It's very romantic radio time with the rain falling outside and everything so green. Kind of that storm light, that subdued storm light. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, everybody, grab your grab your beverage, kick mm-hmm. your feet back or feet up, I should say. <laughs> and we're going to talk about the scintillating topic of rental housing in mm-hmm. Vermont. Which, for folks who may not know, uh, I believe it was on July 2nd, the governor, much to my surprise, vetoed um, a bill that had gone through the Senate and the House called S-79, which has the august title of an act relating to improving rental housing and safety. And you have been working on this bill, Emily, if I recall um, give us the kind of highlights of, of what this bill had tried to accomplish. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I don't usually get very partisan on this show. In fact, I hardly ever do. I think I might even go out of my way not to most of the time, because I think for the most part, it's not actually very interesting to our listeners. And I don't think it um, serves the cause of conversation all that well. But um, I think I might a little bit on this show because I'm I'm really disappointed that this bill was vetoed. Mm -hmm. And I would like to repeat for those who perhaps aren't aware that our governor has vetoed um, significantly more bills in his fairly short tenure as a governor than any governor ever. Yes. Um, And the um, we've also now overturned more vetoes, this um, existing house of representatives, um, than anybody ever, but it seems like there's still more to do. So um, rental housing in Vermont is fairly catastrophic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think anyone will doubt that. Right. We have been talking about that for a very long time. Um, rents are much higher than wages. And we have significant shortages in rental housing at every stage of the market. And we've talked about this so many times before. What we also have is a significant lack of information about our rental housing market. And because Vermont um, tends to not have very many building or safety codes, we have really no guarantees, no statewide guarantees of rental housing safety for tenants. Mm -hmm. Um, And tenants have no real mechanism to protect themselves in unsafe rental conditions in Vermont, Um, which is a problem, excuse me. Sun tight. Bless you. (laughs) Some very tickly allergen just came in the window or something. Um, So that's a significant problem regardless, but 
not having mechanisms to pursue um, protection is particularly challenging in an environment where um, the power imbalance is so extreme. So, well, and we should also say it's hard in an environment where we have such tight vacancy rates. Exactly. I think in a lot of other communities, if a house, a rental unit was unsafe, people would move. Mm -hmm. And over time, you wouldn't be able to rent that unit out and it would kind of force the landlord to do something better. However, because our market is so tight, like where's somebody going to go? Yeah. So I guess in some universe, you might say that this is the case where the market would sort of take care of bad stock um, because people wouldn't rent those spaces. But people do because there's nowhere else to go. And people are scared to leave or scared for their to develop a negative relationship with their landlord because there's nowhere else for them to go. So all of these things were fairly catastrophic before the pandemic. The pandemic um, further tightened our housing market and our rental market, partly because um, people were staying put. Um, it was not a place time when many people were moving around Vermont, um, both because of the eviction moratorium and just because people were nervous about their lives and didn't want to change anything. Right. And we've seen this huge increase in the growth of short-term rentals and people coming here from other states in order to enjoy some of our really fabulous pandemic response um, and sort of the safety and comfort that we have here compared to other places. And so, and then a lot of second, a lot of homes are being sold to become sort of second homes or new resident homes. So the existing sort of catastrophic rental industry got more catastrophic. And it's a situation where we can't have just one solution to the problem. And we've talked about this on the show before. We need multiple solutions to the problem. And one of the solutions that we need is good data to actually understand what's happening in our rental market, other than just, we know we have terrible scarcity because we have sort of regular studies every couple of years of vacancy rates, but we don't really have a sense of um, how things change, mm -hmm. what our rental units really necessarily are, who tends to own our rental units, um, if people maintain rental units for a very long-term or if they tend to sort of move in and out of using units as rentals. And all of those pieces of data are really, really important for us to make good policy decisions to support rental housing in Vermont, to support mm -hmm. folks who are renting out property in Vermont and to support folks who are renting property in Vermont. So that's one piece of sort of, we really need that data. And the second piece is we really need safe rental housing. I mean, and we can talk sort of about the public health implications of um, substandard housing in later in the show. Mm -hmm. So um, this housing bill had um, that the governor vetoed had really significant investments built into it in rehab funding so that folks who do have units that could come online with a little bit of investment can receive um, ARPA funds to grow their housing stock um, and improve their units, as well as a bunch of other housing money. And then the other piece of the bill was something that's a housing registry. Mm -hmm. um, and we already have that in Brattleboro for long-term rentals. 
So it's anyone who has a rental unit, either a short-term that they're using for short-term rentals or they're using for long-term rentals is required to register with the state and attest to a certain level of safety requirements, fairly bare bones. Mm -hmm. And then there's sort of a complaint mechanism built into that, um, which is how most of our regulatory work in Vermont goes because we tend to not um, staff up regulatory agencies very fully. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing. The plan was endorsed with by really an incredible range of partners. Yeah, that was Um, surprising. It was was pretty remarkable. So the Chamber of Commerce, um, which is tends to be fairly far to the right in their political activity, came out roundly endorsing the um, rental registry. The Vermont League of Cities and Towns, which tends to be quite centrist and focused, um, came out really in strong support of this. And then all of the housing agencies, both housing developers and affordable housing partners and homeless services agencies all came out in support of this rental registry. Mm-hmm. And the governor vetoed it. Mm-hmm. And one of the explanations he gave when he vetoed it was that when he and his wife decided to convert part of their home into an apartment rental, the process, he didn't, they sort of navigated that process fairly successfully. And he um, didn't want to add any further inconvenience to that process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what stood out so strongly for me in that is he was prioritizing a small amount of comfort on his part, a small savings and paperwork over the comfort of thousands of Vermonters who live in substandard rental housing. Mm-hmm. And who are experiencing safety hazards from, you know, fire to air quality, yeah, to handicap accessibility every day, and that prioritizing of the comfort of some over the comfort of others is really challenging to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I'm just looking over my my notes from his veto letter that he sent the legislature to to accompany his veto, and. Yeah, for him, I think one phrase he used was the solution is not more regulation. Mm-hmm. And that he he expressed the concern that if we do this, um, we'll reduce the investment in new housing. And mm-hmm. that's really where we need to put our priorities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that interesting because to me, it doesn't seem like an either or. Like, I don't see why you can't invest in new housing and have a registry like to me they're like one they can happen in fact one actually makes it easier to do the other Mm -hmm. so with a registry we can understand where our need is much more easily right and we can target our interventions to that need Mm -hmm. for instance when the pandemic first started and we needed to get in touch with folks who were running short-term rentals and long-term rentals to both help them understand what services were and financial supports were available to them as business owners and to make sure they understood what tenants' rights were in this situation or that they needed to really close down for a little bit. We didn't know who to be in touch with because we did not have a comprehensive list. Right. So 
minimum regulation in the form of a registry, which is a very sort of Vermont thing to do, um, often really supports the kind of investments and supports that we want to do in other areas. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It, it made me wonder too, with this veto, um, I was recently speaking with a number of folks in Chittenden County for a different article with Vermont Business Magazine. And their their housing market is just as tight as Brattleboro's. So for folks, they may have heard the, us say this on the show before, but in general, housing organizations in the country say that for a community to have a healthy vacancy rate, meaning people can find housing pretty easily and get into that housing pretty easily, it's around 5%. And I think Brattleboro is, is like at best point. Zero five percent, or or one percent. It's so low that it's, it's not so really low. numberable. Chittenden County is about the same, mm-hmm. um, and so that just kind of puts a number on how tight the market is. And you know, I was talking to folks who organizations who were trying to put to build, like each year they wanted to to construct five hundred to seven hundred new units, and. And in many cases they had, and it still wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, given how, to me, that sounds like a real crisis. When mm-hmm. you are putting in that many new units and they're still not keeping up with demand um, and they're not keeping up with people's wages, mm-hmm. like what? Um, and so I guess to me, when I when I saw this veto, what surprised me was I just, I don't know, I guess I had assumed wrongly, obviously, that the governor would be like, because he's talked so much about the housing crisis, and he has put, to be fair, he has put new spending into creating new units. I guess I just thought that, look, another tool in the toolbox, let's do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was just surprised that that he would veto it. Um I think and, it really points to, I'm sorry, should I? Would you oh, like no, go to ahead, your go ahead. In Volga? Are you sure? <laughs> I am sure, yes. Okay. Thank you. Um, I think it really points to a theory of government um, that I am quite uncomfortable with. Hmm. And the idea is that government is just there as a regulatory force in poor people's lives mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to regulate their behavior um, in order, in exchange for benefits. Mm-hmm. but should not be a force in the life of those who have means. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so a regulatory inconvenience for a landlord mm-hmm. who is, um, I think through this sort of, I think there's a construct here that the landlord in investing in a housing unit and making a profit is still is somehow offering a gift to the community and does not deserve regulation. Hmm. Whereas a less wealthy person who is seeking funds from the state or seeking support from the state um, is absolutely obligated to withstand that regulation of their life. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not how I see government. Just to poke at that a little bit, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. How else have you seen that show up 
in some of the governor's choices or decisions, or has it only shown up in as far as uh, S seventy nine is concerned? Oh no, I mean we see, we saw that very strongly um, in how ARPA in how COVID relief funds um, were delivered. In that the funds that went to businesses had a much lower threshold for verification than any funds that we send to individuals. Mm, okay. Um, and the auditor's office has this really like amazing chart in, um, uh, I think it's a report about um, VEPSI, um, the Vermont Employment Economic Progress Council. Um, okay, I haven't seen that, bummer. I, I like his reports. I like yeah, the auditor's And I'll send you, it's a great chart, but it really talks about um, sort of, the threshold for verification for say um, food stamps or rental subsidy Mm -hmm. or um, public service, you know, like electrical subsidy or whatever it is, the threshold on the individual versus the threshold on sort of the business owner um, Mm -hmm. who is also an individual is very, very different across the chart. And I will, um, I'll send it to you. Maybe I can even post it um, along with this article, along with this um, podcast when we share that. It's, mm-hmm. it's remarkable though. And I think it's a shame because government can be a force for good in all of our lives. And often what we see when we're regulating an industry, it means that the folks who are doing good um, don't get punished for that because everyone is at a level playing field. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think sometimes too, when we talk about regulation and especially the paperwork that goes along with it, mm-hmm. sometimes for me, the question is not whether or not the, the regulation is a problem, mm-hmm. but how we actually design the regulation and we design the paperwork. Um, sometimes it feels to me it's unnecessarily complicated. Yes. And and there are ways we could streamline our processes to make them easier for everybody who has to interact with them. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think we do a better job streamlining those processes for businesses than we do for individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of it is that we've had this long running trend across party in America, especially, and including it very much so in Vermont, where we're so... Um, scared of believing in the value of government that we refuse to invest in it enough to actually ease people's experience with government. Hmm, Interesting. So the registry would have just very simple, would have created two, this sort of on complaint system for safety regulations and just a list of all the properties in Vermont. And all of these folks came on board with it Brattleboro has an existing rental registry for long-term rental units that seems to be going well. Burlington has one and all of those systems would um, be incorporated into this existing rental registry. Mm-hmm. Folks in Brattleboro would not have to register a new, they would be put into the exist. They would stay in their existing system. Mm-hmm. Um, so they would have to go to like a state website to register and the town website. They nope. Just they would just need to go to the town website. It's whichever sort of threshold is higher. Um, and so Brattleboro's threshold is slightly higher mm-hmm. for safety and such. And so they would go there. Um, and that's, that's it. It's just, it was a 
very simple, straightforward thing. One of the other arguments is that there aren't any other statewide systems like this. Um, that's one of sort of the other arguments against the bill. Hmm. And that's an argument that happens in Vermont sometimes. And I think it's really important to remember that Vermont, the entire state is smaller than some small cities. And a lot of small cities mm-hmm. have citywide rental registries. Mm-hmm. Vermont also has one of the lowest rates of rental in the entire country. We have one of the highest home ownership rates in the country. And so our um, rental stock is a lot more scattered um, tends to be with sort of smaller homeowners. Um, and we have a much less in some ways formalized system for it because so many of our communities have so few rentals in them. Gotcha. Interesting. So, um, we have just about five minutes before the end of this, this portion before we hear from underwriters. Um, and I want to just, loop back to to what you said about um, statewide registry and how often in Vermont we argue about having a statewide system, if I heard that correctly. (laughs) And I I don't know, I'd I'd like to pick at that just a a little bit because that surprises me, especially because I believe last week or the week before – we talked to Ted Brady about local control and being a Dillon's real estate. I don't know. It just would seem to me that we do have a lot of statewide systems. Mm, I mean, our community mental health agencies are on a County level, mm-hmm. totally separate agencies. All of our education is done at the community level and regulated at the community level. Um, our hospital systems. We have multiple hospital systems throughout the state. Um, we have like 20 bajillion different ways of policing our communities. And that's all fine. I mean, like there's the homegrown Vermont spirit. It's just often um, we have different, I can keep on going with sort of the list. We have the regional development corporations that are different in each county and um, totally their own organization. And that's absolutely fine. Like it's homegrown and it's um, controlled at the local level and all of those things. But given how tiny the state is, sometimes there's real inefficiencies in the way we do that. Mm -hmm. And especially in a rental market, which is not, um, is not, there's very, it's very rare that people need to rent in one specific town versus one town over from that. And um, people talk about, um, so there's watersheds and then people talk about sort of job sheds or work sheds Mm -hmm. um, and housing sheds are very similar to that. Um, It's usually much larger scale community. And so doing this bit by bit at the town level will create a lot of regulatory confusion, especially for folks who own properties in multiple communities. Um, Good point. Or folks who are coming from outside to rent. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. Uh, before we head to break, anything you want to leave uh, listeners with? I just want us to sit with that idea of um, whose comfort we prioritize and what we consider discomfort. Um, that 
what we think of as sort of the price of doing business versus um, discomfort and inconvenience and how much um, sometimes it seems that we're begging people to profit from something rather than just appreciating that that's how business functions. Okay, thank you. The Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro is going to hear from some of our underwriters. to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us at Apple Podcasts, as well as Brattleboro Community Television, our Facebook page, our Captivate page, and Emily's YouTube. And hey, Emily, what do we need to remind listeners? The views and opinions expressed on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the guest and the hosts and not of any of the stations. I'd also like to welcome all of the new viewers that we have around the state, including I believe some new viewers in Massachusetts. Yes. Because some stations, all of the public access stations have um, some magical library amongst themselves or something like that. I don't actually have any idea how it works. It's a maybe we should, box. I think we should maybe do a show about that because so I can understand it better because okay. I don't understand it. But a bunch of stations all around the state have picked up the show. And so I'd love to welcome our new listeners. Yes, thank you. We have, thank you for saying that, Emily, because I believe it was 12 new stations have picked up the uh, Montpelier Happy Hour. Uh, what happens for folks, the Brattleboro Community Television generously takes our YouTube video and repackages it and puts it on their station, but then they send it to, it has a technical name, but I'm going to call it the, I like that, the Magical Library. Um, And then anyone else who is a public access station or what's also known as a PEG, public, um, public education and government, I believe PEG stands for, uh, has access to these uh, libraries and uh, 12 stations, most of them in Vermont, but also some in Massachusetts have recently picked us up. So we are really honored that that folks are finding our conversations interesting and, you know, no pressure, Emily, no pressure, no pressure at all. (laughs) Well, I want to loop back to something we were talking about in the first half of the happy hour about what you, you said so eloquently about whose comfort we prioritize Mm -hmm. and who government serves or, or should hold accountable. And what that resonated for me was something we talk about in the happy hour a lot is about the stories we tell. And I think what you mentioned really highlights how, if we're not careful, we tell stories about who rents or who is a landlord, Mm -hmm. um, what services they do or do not deserve. And how often I was recently in the past few months listening to such conversations at the local level. And a lot of them were not accurate Mm -hmm. when they were, when folks were talking about who rents, the stories just were, you know, maybe one or two people had done some of the things landlords were talking about, 
but it wasn't renters as a whole. And I would say the same was true when folks were talking about landlords as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm wondering with something like S79 uh, about improving uh, rental housing in Vermont, is does something like this, how can this help um, us have more accurate information? You talked a little bit about gathering better data. Like, can we pull that apart so that mm-hmm. we actually have better services for everyone across the board? Like, let's highlight that a little bit more. Yeah. So one piece of this that I've named a few times is the data piece. Mm-hmm. And so if we are able to know who all of the folks renting properties are in Vermont, then we can offer them services. We can offer them information about incentives, um, tax changes, um, efficient energy efficient innovations. That's the word I'm going to attach to that. <laughs> um, and right now we can't. And what happens is the larger landlords who have who are sort of professional landlords have time to stay in the loop on all of those government products and services. Whereas sort of the smaller landlords who are just renting out maybe one unit attached to their house don't have access to all of that information. And so it would be a real asset to folks who are renting throughout the state for us to be able to have this list so that we can be in touch and offer support and services and information to all of those folks. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also on the, and maybe like really help people figure out their business model if they want to figure out how the regulation can fit into their business model. The other piece that I think is really interesting is when we talk about who rents I think, yes, so many of us have a story about who rents. And I think even within those of us who have um, perhaps a broader story about who rents, those of us who have rented more recently or um, are currently renting, I think we um, forget how the face of renters is changing in Vermont. Hmm. That a lot of older Vermonters are interested in selling their homes, their, you know, inconvenient rambling old farmhouses that involve lots of shoveling and maintenance and want to move into much smaller rental units where someone else takes care of all of this Mm -hmm, stuff. mm -hmm. Um, We know that millennials often because of their significant college debt um, cannot own a home, even if they want to. Mm -hmm. And so we have a whole generation of folks who are renting because of that really regardless of their income level. Um, And then we have a lot of folks who, you know, we also, as we become a more diverse state, um, we know that white people because of generational wealth are much more likely to own homes. And so as we become more diverse, we might become much more rental centric. Um, And so there's sort of all those layers of who rents that are newer to Vermont. And um, I think we'll, folks will have different needs as those populations run. So one tension I hear when I talk to people about renting 
for for articles or or home ownership rental market the whole nine yards is this tension between long-term and short-term rentals mm. and stories abound about that too <laughs> about who who has short-term rentals versus long-term and and who's doing good for the community versus who isn't but one thing i find interesting and this goes to the the point of regulation I have heard from a number of people who have short-term rentals that one reason they do that, and many of them used to rent out these units long-term, and they have since transitioned to short-term rentals. And one reason they do that is they feel it is um, easier for them uh, as far as regulations go, and they can they can make more, more money, fair enough. Um, so I'm curious about about that since we are talking about S79 and regulations. Can you talk to me a little bit about um, short-term rentals versus long-term rentals versus regulation? How does S79 fit into that or not? Mm -hmm. um, can we pick that apart a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, in Vermont and in a lot of states around the country, we have a body of law of tenants' rights. Mm -hmm. um, and those are all rights that tenants have um, regarding notice, regarding things that need to be fixed, um, what eviction needs to look like. Um, and that whole body of law only applies to long-term rentals. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't want to have your business model as a person who wants to rent something out, engage with that body of law, then a short-term rental makes sense. Um, you have a lot more control mm -hmm. over your property. Um, and in some ways, um, it can be lower risk in that the risk that you're taking is immediate um, and the consequences are immediate. Mm -hmm. It's a shorter term risk, though it can be quite risky. I mean, there are you know, I've heard stories from all over the state about really um, disastrous things happening with short-term rentals. And the legal remedies are quite different mm -hmm. in, um, because there isn't a body of law attached to it at all. Good point. Yeah. Um, and so the remedy for both parties is um, quite narrow for short-term rentals. Mm -hmm. So as you might remember, um, and maybe our listeners remember, I introduced a bill that was just about short-term rental regulation. Yes. Um, which I think was numbered H200. And I introduced it with a rep from Burlington, who's the progressive minority leader, Selena Colburn, and then a rep from Londonderry, Kelly Payala, who's an independent. So we represent a very broad spectrum of legislators from very different communities. But in all three of our communities, we know that the growth in short-term rentals, as people take long-term rentals off the market and move into short-term rentals, um, is having a fairly disastrous effect on our communities in a number of ways. And one of them is that business owners who have been running bed and breakfasts and hotels for decades, or even for a couple of years, and are... Um, participating in the full regulatory framework of the hospitality industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that whole, um, in, yeah. Yeah, and there's a set of law around the hospitality industry to protect guests and hosts. Mm -hmm. um, 
they are experiencing a business loss as short-term rentals, which don't have a regulatory mechanism attached to them, are brought online. Um, we know it's taking long-term rentals off the market. And so folks have nowhere to live and, you know, it's harder for people to hire. And so that bill that was very specifically about um, regulating the short-term rental industry, both creating a registry and saying that they needed to be regulated the way um, bed and breakfasts do, Mm -hmm. um, was endorsed by um, both housing advocacy organizations and the Chamber of Commerce. Again, broad political spectrum. Um, I knew would not pass this last year. None of it, we all knew it wouldn't pass this last year, but it did start a conversation. Mm-hmm. And what happened in that conversation, as I got hundreds and hundreds of emails from folks, very few from my constituents, but from people all over the country, um, mostly from folks who lived out of state and owned properties in state. Oh, well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, who in some cases were... Um, overextended on mortgages on their second or third homes. Mm-hmm. And we're using this as a way of covering the mortgage on their second or third homes. Okay. Um, they all said over and over again, I don't want to be part of this regulatory framework. That's too much, but I'm happy to register. Hmm. And so. Which brings us back to S79. Exactly. And so all of those emails, the hundreds of them, I forwarded to the chair of the house general and housing committee, um, who is the one who shepherded S79 through and said, all of these people say they are comfortable being regulated. All these short-term rental owners are comfortable um, with the registry, even though they're not quite ready for more regulation. Mm-hmm. And so in a state where it's often really hard in the middle of a pandemic, even to have these sort of conversations about like to really get the consent of the governed. Um, we had hundreds and hundreds of emails from people saying, yes, the registry is fine with me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So now that the governor has vetoed uh, S79, what is the process for going forward? Is it just dead in the water or can the legislature reconvene for another veto session? Because they've already had one Mm -hmm. at the beginning of this month or the end of June. Um, Can they hold another one? Like, how does that work? So we already had our veto session. We already had a veto session and we overturned the vetoes on the Winooski and the Montpelier charter changes. Mm -hmm. And we had an episode about that, um, was that just last week or two weeks? It was two weeks ago. Two weeks ago with Ted Brady from the Vermont League of Cities and Towns, if people want to go back. Um, and because this is the first year of the biennium, we can actually overturn that veto anytime until the end of the biennium. Uh-huh. And so we're likely going to try to do that in January. Um, the We are... Legally, per, legally, and um, traditionally permitted traditions are very important in the legislature. <laughs> yes, um, we are absolutely able to have another veto session, um, and it's possible that some of our policy committees—it's likely even that some of our policy committees are going to reconvene in October for sort of a mini session. Mm-hmm. But um, given 
the endlessness of last year's session during the pandemic and how many legislators um, really, really need to just stay focused on their day jobs for this chunk of time. Um, everyone felt that it was better to not hold another veto session and to wait until January to make sure that we can really have everyone there for it, especially since we would need to be in person now. Um, we were still under the mm -hmm. state of emergency for the last veto session. And so we could all do it remotely, mm -hmm. which made it a um, much more easeful process, but we would all actually need to go to Montpelier for the next veto session. And um, one, the logistics of having us all in the building have not been fully filled out, figured out yet. It's mm -hmm. much more expensive for us all to be in the building, mm -hmm. um, all of those things. So we're going to wait until January, which is a shame because this is all really urgent. Mm -hmm. um, we need the information in the registry and we also really need some of those safety guidelines. I don't, yeah, I, when I was, I've had a lot of ex opportunities in my life to um, both live in some really terrible rental units um, and, um, to visit some really terrible rental units, both when I was, um, doing social work type work. And, um, when I was knocking on doors, when I was running for office, um, knocked on every, um, door and converted barn hayloft and, um, rental unit in the area. And it's, it's yeah. really wild the way, um, so many of us are living. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we should probably be clear with folks for, for listeners' sake that when we're talking about some really bad rental units, we're not talking about, oh, they don't have chrome finishes. We're, we're talking about plumbing that doesn't work. We're talking about, as you said, bad air quality. We're talking about uh, heating systems that don't work. So things that are very, very cold in the winter and very, very hot in the summer and... Um, really what I think in an industrialized country like the U.S., we would think of as kind of basic things that need to be mm -hmm. met, um, and they're, they're often not met. No, we're talking about significant black mold. Mm -hmm. We're talking about significant safety hazards for children and for adults, but for children. Um, we're talking about fire conditions that... Um, are a real danger to the entire neighborhood, not just the people living there and the firefighters who would come to fight that fire. Mm -hmm. um, we're talking about electrical wiring that is so far from code that it's laughable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, you know, frozen pipes mm -hmm. all winter with hair dryers. And I've rented places where I called my landlord to say, my pipes are frozen. And they said, use a hairdryer. Mm -hmm. I was like, it's actually a miracle. I own a hairdryer, but okay, <laughs> I will do that. But I'm, and I'm supposed to pay you rent. Like what is happening here? Mm -hmm. um, I rented one place where I think I went through an entire tank of oil in less than a month. And like, I was keeping the place at like 60. Mm -hmm. um, just wild wild mm -hmm. situations for people to live in and situations that people are really scared to complain about because they have nowhere else to go. Right. You know, I want to, uh, before we end, I also want to talk about 
something that has been sitting with me, I believe this was Kevin Dorn from South Burlington that I was speaking with, the former town manager. Um, he said something really interesting, and I think this is true in a lot of communities in Wyndham County too, especially um, in a lot of the resort communities where rents uh, are A, hard to find and, and B, pretty expensive compared to wages. You know, he was talking about how when you have a tight housing market, whether it's a homeownership or rental markets, when people can't find places to live in their communities, of course, they go outside the community to find some place where they can live. And the, the knock-on effect of that is that it turns people who could be residents, meaning potential volunteers, potential school children, um, potential civic, you know, people who could potentially be involved in the civic fabric of and a taxpayers. community's life and taxpayers, turns them into commuters. Mm -hmm. And so you're actually, it's kind of a, a form of resource drain mm -hmm. um, because you're losing all these people to, to other communities. And I don't say that to pit one community against the, the other, but I think that is another part of a, the tight housing market that we don't think about is how this is um, potentially disrupting some of the fabrics of our community because people, you know, and, and if someone's commuting, then they're also not putting that time to the community they actually live in either because that's a good 45 minutes to two hours for a mm -hmm. lot of people out of, out of their day. Um, no, and, you know, communities where short-term rentals have really taken over the fabric of the rental market are missing out on so many residences, residents, and they have so many people coming in and out of their communities that don't have any idea of where the garbage goes or what the sort of rules, you know, implicit rules are around trespassing or whatever it is. And if they were staying at say a bed and breakfast or a hotel, there would be someone there to help them, to host them, mm -hmm. to help them figure out those resources. Mm -hmm. But in a short-term rental, that's very rarely available, especially given in my experience, how many of the short-term rentals are owned by folks who don't live in those communities. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And I, I think we should point out that a lot of this is about balance too. Mm -hmm. You know, just because someone has a short term rental does not necessarily mean they're eroding the fabric of the community. But when the number gets to a point where it becomes unbalanced, um, just like people commuting for work is not necessarily a bad thing. But I think the housing market in Vermont has become so unbalanced mm -hmm. that it's starting to tip the, the scales of, of community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, other sort of add-on effects when we don't invest in regulation and data related to this is we have older people staying in homes that they don't feel safe in, either socially safe because they're so isolated or physically safe because there's so much upkeep or financially safe because they're paying property taxes that are well in excess of the amount of property that they need or want. Um, we have folks staying in relationships that they don't feel socially or physically or financially safe in. Um, and we have families who might want to move into a larger space or a space with more green that mm -hmm. can't because there's nowhere to go. And so the knock-on effects of the 
rental challenges really well beyond just sort of the employer challenges of this are incredible from sort of climate to mental health to, you know, everything. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Emily. We are just about out of time. So I want to thank you for diving in on the, this topic with us today, Emily. And um, I just want to toast to improving Vermont's housing market across the board. And I think it's appropriate that you have the VHFA mug in your hand. It's a really good mug. It is. And it's nice, big, substantial. That's why it's a really good mug. It's yeah. yeah. You can get a lot of tea in that. Yeah. Um, and just everything that improves um, the housing market is so necessary right now in our state. So to everyone who's working on that, thank you and cheers. And I'd also that, like, no. What's, yeah, yes, no. go ahead, sweetie. I just, I was mentioning to someone yesterday that we were like, we're pretty close to our 150th episode. And, um, I just want our listeners to know that and know that we're going to like do something fantastic when we get there. We are. I was actually um, looking through Captivate uh, over the weekend and I think we're up on um, our hundred, we're up in the hundred and thirties. So I have to do the math to find out which week is our 150th. And then yes, we, we have to party because three years, I mean, we've been doing this for three years. That's pretty not bad for a volunteer gig, eh? No, no. <laughs> Very old for a podcast, I think, too. I think it might be. So pat yourself on the back. Emily, if folks want more information on you, where can they find it? <clears throat> Excuse me. Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org, um, where you can find access and links to all my social media accounts, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, as well as my phone number and email address and any announcements about upcoming events. Wonderful. Of course, you can find the Montpelier Happy Hour at the themontpelierhappyhour.captivate.fm. You can find us on iTunes, across New England at different uh, community access channels, and every Friday at 2 at WBW 107.7 LP. Have a great day.